When the dust settled, literally, in the Capitol building last week, the same old Congress was still there. The Congress with its partisanship and old-fashioned modes of working. One local institution wants to help the beleaguered Congress with 21st century strategies. Here with what they're up to, the Director of Congressional Modernization at Georgetown University's Beak Center for Social Impact and Innovation, Lorelei Kelly. Ms. Kelly, good to have you on. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Congress itself has subcommittees and select committees trying to modernize it. There's been a lot of runs at trying to update Congress. Tell us what you're doing at the Beck Center. So I lead the program on modernizing Congress. And over the last couple of years, I've been supporting and helping the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress, not only with ideas and writing about it and getting the word out, but really helping do the thinking in a sort of Congress-friendly, public-serving environment. And that's what we do at Georgetown is try to leverage tech and data for common goods. And of course, Congress is the biggest institutional common good that exists in the United States. So, so you've been working with Derek Kilmer of Washington as, I think, the yes, co-chairman and, of that committee. And his staff, uh, Mr. Graves and Mr. Kilmer, were the chairs, six Democrats, six Republicans, 97 recommendations, completely unanimous. That's Democrats and Republicans working together. I went to every hearing. These issues of simple, basic workflow function were so sort of derelict and are so necessary. I think people need to take hope that talking about paper clips and three ring binders instead of collaborative editing systems and internal communications that are unified and secure, it's really basic some of these steps forward. And in one of the statements of the Beck Center, it says we envision a modern governing system where Americans leverage technology and data to renew democracy. What do you mean by that? And how does that apply over to Congress? One of the things that a lot of lamentation and worry, deservedly so, is this sort of weaponization of the deliberative process and the danger and sort of unproductivity of public spaces for discussion. And this has really happened at many levels. I think in the 2000s, sort of when the Tea Party movement came on the scene and there were a lot of attacks happening in town halls and sort of typical ways that members connect with their public, that just metastasized into an online version of that, in my view, where you have advertising platforms substituting for civic discourse. I mean, of course, that was never going to happen. If you can take out ad buys on Facebook or any of these commercial advertising platforms, they're not going to protect civics. They're not going to protect that thoughtful, deliberative, slow thinking space where you make policy and where members connect with each other. And once you start to incentivize that kind of weaponization and rapid response, the functions of democracy start aligning with that commercial algorithm, not democracy. And we're like, we've been in this situation for a couple of decades now. Like what we're experiencing today, to me, is just the worst possible symbolic outcome. It's not an accident. It's an outcome. We need to think about it that way. This happened in stages. We were not paying attention. Our leaders did not act. And the American people have everything to do with that. Uh, this is a citizenship failure as, as much as it is a leadership failure. And um, we can talk more about that. But I think that American people have to be brought back meaningfully into their self-determination because that's what will build legitimacy back. Well, I don't think uh, the young fellow that runs Facebook is going anywhere and ditto for the fellow that runs Twitter. So how can we get past them, which I think are in many ways toxic, and also it gives the platform where very few people can 
make it seem as if the whole nation thinks a certain way. And really, it could be just 10 people. And you have this exponential effect of some really dumb ideas sometimes. So how can Congress in itself get away from that and get back to deliberation? Well, I think what's interesting about Congress, and since this is kind of a federal nerd audience, I hope um, you know that a lot of the most important things that happen in government happen behind the scenes. And this is a huge collaborative enterprise. And when you look at the industry standard out there on technology, for example, the industry standard is for finding the best information at the right time, for allowing communications to happen securely, to create moments of even in a, in a pandemic for the serendipity and the water cooler conversations to happen. All of that, that happens underneath the radar screen. I think that what we need to have for Congress, for example, it just, remember, just keep this in mind. Congress just got an enterprise Zoom license on July 27th, a few months ago. It did not even have a way to go remote in a secure way. It didn't even have a secure phone in a safe in every district office. That's 900 district offices at the periphery of Congress. It is really the dereliction of duty at many levels, and there's many reasons for this. I'm not going to go into all of them. It's a layered set of problems. Those problems have been identified. They are being addressed. That is the first most important thing that people need. The thing about the private industry and the commercial advertising platforms, one of the ways we can begin to solve that problem is simply to make public sector voice competitive. It cannot compete with the media. It can't compete with the executive branch. And it can't compete with the private sector. The U.S. Congress, the most powerful legislature in the world. It is the people's house, at least the House of Representatives. The Senate is coming along. It's about 12 years behind the House in terms of technology upgrades. It will get there and then probably take all the credit for it. Sorry. <laughs> I worked on the House side, so that's Got kind it. of an inside joke. Uh, but yeah, the, the recognition is now there. We cannot avoid this anymore. Do we want a democracy that functions at the most basic modern level or do we not? It's going to take money, time, and it's going to take personnel. Everyone knows those three things who works in the federal government. Well, give us an outline of some of the activities at the Beck Center that is trying to help bring this about and our students involved at all because they're the future. Yes, indeed. So, yes, the, the centerpiece of the Beck Center is uh, mentoring and creating a, a sort of a pipeline and a confidence and knowledge for future leaders, future public servants. Uh, one of the joys for me of working at the Beck Center is working at a employer that has a Jesuit code of conduct, a Jesuit ethics. It's about contemplation of the whole and service to others and education. They're really dedicated to that. You know, they have 400 years uh, <laughs> of a commitment to this. So I love that about Georgetown. So we did a pop-up class, like keep in mind, like we're building the curriculum right now with prototypes and pilots and proofs of concept for the classes that we'll have. Like certainly we participate in things like hackathons and innovation labs and really pointing out the unique bespoke needs of Congress. Like you can't, like that's the whole thing with making it competitive, right? Congress is a unique, you can't scale the system for Congress. You can't sell it to others. There's only one of them. 
So that's one of the reasons that's hard, right? It's not, there's not a lot of, of market out there for an enterprise scale system for <laughs> parliaments. Well, I think that's uh, a good thing to acknowledge because, right? you know, yeah. if you're, they use Microsoft Word or something, that kind of commercial product, but really if you want to map something that is the deliberative process as envisioned in the Constitution, then there is only one, well, maybe there's 50, I guess, state legislatures, but they're not all bicameral, and they all have different constitutional origins themselves. So maybe there really only is one, and that means biting the bullet and building the one of. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's, we just are going to have to figure out that we care and love this institution, and we're going to pay for it. We're going to pay for the sort of premier complex, adaptive, democratic system. We are going to have to pay for that. And we're going to have to find the best people and bring them in. And we're going to need to do it for the long term. This is a long game. We have not done it for 20 years. And so this failure that we saw, it's not just a leadership failure. It's a citizenship failure. Well, let we me have give to, you a, to stop trash talking it and start building. Let me give you a, a practical issue. Recent bills, say, run two, three, four, five, almost 6,000 pages, and they have large tracts of provisions that have nothing to do with the original name and intent of the legislation, such as the emergency of the pandemic, for example. Well, that's Congress's doing, and none of them read the bill. Nobody's read any of those bills. I don't think any one person has read all of it. Different staff members read maybe a thousand pages, but nobody really knows it got to be a joke when Nancy Pelosi said of the uh, Obamacare bill, let's pass it and then see what's in it. I think that was kind of a Freudian slip in that, I don't know what's in that, nobody knows what's in that thing. It was That was only two or 3,000 pages. That's a real issue, a practical issue. And part of it is the intent of Congress because they all pile on what they want from both parties in that must-pass bill and then you've got people finding things shoved down their throats that nobody knew about. Yeah, that's called an airdrop when something just drops into the legislation crossing Independence Avenue. <laughs> and then it, it's under the Christmas tree. And that's what these omnibus bills are called. Something under it for everyone. Listen, that is appalling, shocking, and it should not happen. And let me tell you one of the reasons why that happens. It's because the actual deliberative, thoughtful process of Congress has been sort of amputated in the middle. Only about 50% of the hearings happen in Congress. In some cases, only 30% of the hearings. There are two big processes. One is authorization, which is where you do the kind of discussion sure. and iteration and adding and adjusting and fine-tuning the mechanics. It's in the gears. And then there's the appropriations where the money is allocated. So the attention, time, energy, staffing, everything, bandwidth has moved to appropriations, not authorization. So you have these like five people in a room writing a bill, making it huge and cramming everything into it and then passing it. But it doesn't actually go through a process of oversight or deliberation. Congress is not doing oversight. Everybody needs to sit up and, and understand that while we're sort of shocked and appalled and weeping at this um, sort of marauders in their medieval costumes going through Congress abusing the institution should understand that one of the ways we're going to stop that from ever happening again is to make it strong, competitive, and confident in its fundamental duties. Congress's rules protect itself. They really do. Like you don't see that, but it has a method for curating, for choosing, for understanding that not all information is created equally. The problem is it's stuck in 
you know, the 1890s and maybe the 1940s and maybe the 1990s, but it's all very fragmented and there is no uniform standard of excellence and that's unacceptable. And do you have any hope that any of this can change? And do you think that maybe the events of the storming of the Capitol, I guess we'll call it, will be a catalyst for that kind of change and not just for better physical security? Absolutely. Listen, I worked in East Germany in the former Soviet Union before it turned. I lived in Berlin in 1989. Um, when I came to Congress, I was a nuclear weapons expert. <laughs> and I moved into to fixing Congress because I saw that if you couldn't protect your institutions, then none of the other stuff mattered. Right. I think this is a clarion call. It is a shot across the bow. We know what to do. Here's the thing. Congress has already put together a special select committee on modernization. It's been going for two years. The last time any really system-wide recommendations were implemented was, I think, about 50 years ago. Because every 20 years since the war, since World War II, Congress has reorganized itself. It didn't really happen in the 90s for a lot of reasons we don't need to go into. But that also was the start of this decay of truth, of the weaponization of using modern tools to divide, to socialize division instead of letting members of Congress become colleagues first, to put the institution, to put the nation, and to incentivize that over partisanship. Then Congress used all these sort of commercial campaigning tools for governing. There's no wonder governing looks like campaigning right now. Those are the tools we have. But let me tell you another thing, nerdy, but really important, Congress just changed its what's called mailing standards, the franking rules. The last time they really looked at this, I mean, it was the Pony Express. Like that's when, that's how Congress was set up. Now the same rules that apply for communications online are applying for uh, physical mail. The frank is simply that a member can sign an envelope and that counts as a stamp, right? So that was sort of the mentality until quite recently. I don't so, think I ever knew that actually <laughs> until just now after following this for 30 years. <laughs> yeah, it's like a John Wayne movie with ponies running with leather saddlebags across the country. And I think about that a lot is like this poor beleaguered institution has been trying so hard. And I worked in Congress for 10 years and I've worked with Congress for 10 more. The members of the vast majority are wonderful public servants. I don't agree with a lot of them, but that does not matter on this stuff. They have been elected by their constituents to represent, and we do not give them the tools to actually do that in an effective, resilient way. Congress cannot be the single point of failure in our system if we want a resilient democracy. Right now it is. Lorelai Kelly is Director of Congressional Modernization at Georgetown University's Beck Center for Social Impact and Innovation. Thanks so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.